From the home offices of Ash and Flow, this is Unbillable Hours, a podcast about professional services marketing. Stick around and listen to our insights, tips, and best practices to improve your firm's marketing and even your career. Welcome to this episode of the Unbillable Hours podcast. With us today is Bob Boudet, who's the founder of Boudet Thought Leadership Partners and the author of the recently published book, Competing on Thought Leadership, right? You're also, I think I noted here, you are of, of CSC and Bloom, CSC Index and Bloomberg Group fame, Bob. I don't know if you want to, if you want that in your introduction as well. Fame or infamy, right? Uh, <laughs> we'll see. You know, great so, to be here, guys. Yeah, and we we just wanted so we as Ash said b- before we hit record, we we saw your comments. You saw the sort of the ramp up of the launch of the book on on LinkedIn, and we we wanted to get a chance to to ask you some question about it. So really appreciate you're you're here today. Sure, it's and a pleasure. And I wanted to start. I mean, I've seen you comment on this on LinkedIn and some podcasts on this notion that that the, there's a real gold rush. I think is the phrase you use in the book, right? Of, of thought leadership. Yes. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's picking up on it. Can you maybe reiterate for the listeners what you mean by that? And then maybe also, what are the implications of this? Yeah. You've been in this discipline for a very long time. How is it changing now that there's a gold rush about it? Yeah, like yeah. what's new with that? What's new But besides the fact that mm-hmm. everybody and their grandmother's doing it? Okay, so just a little bit of history here. So I've been doing this, it'll be 35 years in June. Cool. And 35 years ago in June, June of 87, is when I joined a management consulting firm that at the time was called Index Group. It was in uh, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was later purchased by a IT services company called Computer Sciences Corporation, or CSC. Mm. So it became CSC Index when they put their brand on top of ours. So... 35 years ago, I had been in business journalism and um, I knew CSC Index because in some of my stories about the business use of information technology, I talked to their consultants, you know, as for background on articles and quoting them. And they had a publication and and McKinsey had been doing thought leadership uh, for what, 23 years before I joined Index in, uh, in 87. So nobody was calling it thought leadership they i'm not sure they had there was any common term to to describe what this activity was it was largely at that time uh in the late 1980s management consulting firms the, the really smart ones realized that they had to go beyond winding and dining clients on the golf course or country clubs going beyond even the occasional brand advertisement, you know, and and capturing their expertise and putting it in the form of articles, of conference speeches, of books. McKinsey, Bob Waterman, and, and Tom Peters in Search of Excellence came out in the early 80s, and that was a huge success as a business book, you know, a yeah. big bestseller globally. And that began to show management consulting firms that, hey, this, again, we didn't call it thought leadership at the time, but 
capturing your your expert's expertise and getting it out through what an old colleague of mine called low bias, high bandwidth marketing channels versus uh, low bandwidth, high bias marketing channels like advertising. <laughs> that the high Sorry, bandwidth I can can yeah. ask so high bandwidth meaning I have a lot of time and space to explain complex concepts and low bandwidth right. I have. 16 seconds because it's an ad time and money right yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. or it's a full page it's just an ad it's just a one-page ad in you know the new york times or, or business week you can't impart a lot of information in a one-page ad yeah uh, or a 20-second tv spot um so that's the bandwidth so a book is high bandwidth you know quote unquote high bandwidth an article in harvard business review a 2000 word 4000 word article is high bandwidth a white paper is high bandwidth okay the low Low bias, you know, advertising, you, you could put a Harvard Business Review article in a couple page spread in Bloomberg Business Week or The Economist. You could put that in there and it'll say special advertising supplement. And all of a sudden, most of the readers will say, oh, they're trying to sell me something. I don't, you know, you could take that same content and run it as a Harvard Business Review article. And I would argue many more people would read it and buy into yeah. it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can definitely. So yeah. there, there, there's bias. If anything is advertising, you know, you know, someone's trying to pitch you something here. It's a blatant pitch. So, thought leadership channels, I argue, need to be low bias. You don't think you're being sold anything. You think you're being educated. Okay. Whether it's a conference speech, a book, uh, an op-ed, a white paper. There should be no blatant selling, and the channels shouldn't be traditional marketing or advertising channels. That mm. Those are the channels. Thought leadership has a different set of channels. They're more educational channels. And yeah, are they marketing? Yeah, but it's education. All right, and now <clears throat> other industries have hopped onto this. I, I love your raised with the gold rush um, because th that's struck a nerve with me because um, a couple of years back I was doing a study as you do a major major piece of research work research. to come out having to do with the industry 4.0 as we call it here in Germany right the digitalization of industry and it that particular pro project although the research was fine sort of flopped on us because just two weeks before we published a major German bank came out with a study to the same topic and theirs was much bigger like they had a larger sample size they had like tons of ways of slicing and dicing it they had interactive charts on the one like everything was like similar to what we did but two times better that's when i realized what banks are doing this now like <laughs> the guy like what is this so yeah i was on the receiving end on some of that gold rush i think i have a question to ask yeah. because of that because our viewers i mean listeners would like this it's like why is the gold rush now i think the gold rush is because this little cozy island of thought leadership that the management consulting industry used to live on and they were the only natives on the island has been <laughs> discovered by other sectors and it's just been discovered as a place when if you do it well, and a lot of people don't do it well, but if you do thought leadership well, it generates leads and eminence and revenue and higher profitability because you can get more for your expertise uh, if you're known to be the leading expert or a leading expert in your domain. So. So I think it's the island's been discovered 
and it and and it it is now starting to be discovered. It, it was discovered, I would argue, in venture capital, mm-hmm. in a formal way when Andreessen Horowitz got into business in two thousand and nine, and and Mark Andreessen said, "Well, you know, we don't have a portfolio of 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 companies that we back because we're a new VC firm. We can't really operate on that on that basis." My founder and I. Uh, Ben Horowitz, they had come from Netscape and another company. So they could look at that and say, well, look, you know, we've been in very successful venture funded companies, but we don't have our own portfolio companies. So we have to, you know, we have to let the world know we're in business as a venture capital firm on a different basis. And and that is, we think we're smarter about how information technology is changing the world and will change Mm -hmm. the world over the next decade, which is the last decade. And if you look at what they've done thought leadership wise, I think it's been brilliant. That's an interesting, uh, that's an yeah, interesting that, that, case study. Yeah. And just one more for you, Bob, because you mentioned yeah. if you do this well, the thought leadership, and I wanted to connect it to another concept from the book, Ash, which you will love, because I think doing it well in, in Bob's definition, as he describes it has also to do with don't do it just for marketing purposes, but actual genuine thought leadership should be about and i don't think that's a phrase you use but i i heard it our friend jeff mckay use it build intellectual capital like that's the part like you do you drive the effort to build something that informs how you service clients how you think about problems blah, blah, blah. and then you also use it to marketing is that a fair that is fair or? yeah that is fair and if thought leadership <laughs> research reports to marketing then thought leadership research is in trouble um, and <laughs> nice. It is because yeah. because the and I've seen this play out in many firms. The people who are delivering the firm's expertise, whether they're lawyers or consultants or accountants, if thought leadership research is run by marketing, it can be perceived as fluff. Like, how do these folks know? You know, marketing. How do these marketing people? Who are they to tell us how to yeah. deliver our services? They're there to to cap to package and market this expertise, not to take the learnings in thought leadership research and tell us and help us invent new services. So where I thought seeing thought leadership work best is when thought leadership research is in a centralized function. Uh, the head of thought leadership research works very closely with the chief marketing officer and they both report up you know, to a common uh, person. The and, um, sorry, the, I I wonder if you remember how exactly you phrase it because I love the way you describe it. I think that you said the job is to identify differentiated solutions to to unique problems. Or I like that, yes. I, I love the way you described it. I, I butched. I just butchered the quote. I think so. Yeah, my my definition of thought leadership is the eminence that a company uh, or an individual. Seth Godin's a one-person company, right? I mean, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The it's it's the eminence, the fame, the renown, whatever term you want to use, that a company or an individual gains by developing, delivering, and marketing superior expertise. Superior expertise is yes. obviously expertise that solves uh, is better at solving certain business problems in the world. So, and, I, and I'm careful with that definition because it's not just about marketing. It's about yeah. delivering, you know, more important, it's about delivering superior expertise. 
and and that gets back to your question, Ash, about help us or explain how you you presented your model there to to organize this. You mentioned yeah. it should be separate from it should not report into marketing, but there's more to to this top down bottom up thing Ash asked about, right? Yeah. So so the top down. So I believe thought leadership research in a big firm needs to be centralized, as it is in say Accenture, right? Yeah. There's a there's a, a lot of primary research, a ton of primary research that's going on in firms like Accenture and McKinsey, McKinsey Global Institute. Yeah. They take on big economic studies, okay, that typically benefit multiple practices, industry, regional, and other functional practices at McKinsey. Thought leadership needs to be centralized to be done well and for there not to be contradictions in messages from you know, across the firm about here's the way to that we think some business issue in the world should be solved. So marketing of that should be centralized as well. But then there are a lot of thought leadership content and marketing people in the field. And then you say, well, should they be in the field supporting practices and regions? And to me, the answer is yes. That's kind of the bottom up. But if there's no top so you down, need both you, is what you're you saying need both. to an extent. If there's okay. no top down, then the bottom up is just simply a thought. Let's let a thousand points of light shine. And that's a recipe for disaster thought leadership wise yeah. of our, our folks in one industry practice saying the way to solve some problem is this way. Another industry practice say, is saying, say a practice that transcends industry saying, no, that's not the way to solve it. Oh, this is the way to solve we've it. We've been there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We've, <laughs> we've been, been there. there. And right. what you just said uh, got me thinking about one of the issues in B2C, because, you know, some of my background says that there is a knowledge generation function, which is very similar to the thought leadership function, except it's not connected. And the hardest thing from this is measuring what what is the impact of this. It's like, we, uh, I, I literally remember because I had to report on this, it's like, We've increased our knowledge, I mean, our knowledge generation capacity by 80%. That's the metric. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, what's that mean? The only useful metric, let me step back. Yeah. If a company is trying to measure its return on thought leadership, mm -hmm. to me, it says it doesn't believe in thought leadership. It's, it's, it's hoping that thought leadership is going to do something beneficial, but it's not sure. And so until they get some metrics that it's, you know, for every dollar invested in thought leadership, content development and marketing, it gets a whatever three times return. If if it's trying, if it's putting scrutiny on that, that to me says they don't really believe in thought leadership. You know, they're skeptical. Mm -hmm. That's not a good place to uh, to be. If you're measuring thought leadership to understand why does some content and some marketing of that content do much better than other. And let's try to understand, you know, why one campaign got a 10 times return on the investment and another got a, you know, one time return, then that's a useful use of metrics to say, all right, so what did that campaign that got the 10 times return, what did they do differently than the one time? But at some point when, when firms do this right, and, uh, you know, firms like uh, Accenture, Tata Consultancy Services, McKinsey, Bain, Boston Consulting Group, they're not, they're not measuring the return. They're trying to figure out how to improve their thought leadership and the marketing behind it.
And uh, there's another debate that rages in thought leadership that you probably have seen about, well, you know, if we are going to measure the return on thought leadership, then then what should we be measuring? Is measuring downloads, you know, is, is that some sign of return? And I think ultimately thought leadership has to move the needle on revenue and profit. Yeah. yeah. I've heard marketers say, well, you know, thought leadership should not be measured on, on contribution to revenue and profit. And I say BS to that. You know, that, yeah. that that to me is a marketer who's afraid of of, of being found out. Yeah. So but the, the keyword there is the keyword there is ultimately though, because there's a right, there's a latency to that or there's a delay, right? It's not you don't flip the switch, start the program, and then year one you have huge That's right. you know, great mm -hmm. increases. it's like you and you you shouldn't even measure it by the individual pieces, exactly like you say. I would say take a give yourself two years, right? And then make a comparison to a look back window and see, did we bring in more revenue? Did we have shorter sales cycles? Are there other metrics we could maybe grapple? Yes. And do we see an incremental increase there? So if we expected some organic growth, do we see something on top of that? And if that correlates roughly with how much more you invested in marketing for the well, leadership angle, I'd say you're fine. But that's the level of sort of back of a napkin approach that I, that I tried to take. And then, of course, there's people who say that's not good enough, right? It's too imprecise no, I, or, yeah. But I think that's how it works. Away, yeah. yeah. No, I completely agree with you about that. The marketers who don't want to connect the sales and marketing funnels are essentially quite, you know, scared of the output. It's pretty much like having a million mile long pipe. And, you know, when you push it on one end, how, it'll take a while, like you said, before it comes at flow, but it's still, what you put in on one end will come out in the other, even yeah. if it's slow. And and I right. think I mean, I, right. yeah. I mean Ash Ash is your, your background is B two C right consumer yeah. marketing. So my brother Tom was a global head of marketing and communications at Nestle in Veve. He retired last summer. So I can't imagine a firm like uh, Nestle or Procter and Gamble saying we're not sure that mar you know overall we should be marketing. I don't think they're having those discussions, are they? <laughs> and and I think, not. and I, I love, I love this. And I, I was going to call out what you said a bit earlier there for the listeners again, to, to take note of that point, because I think Bob, you're exactly right. As marketers playing in thought leadership, you shouldn't even take the stance of having to justify it because it's been well proven. It's been well proven. Mm -hmm. If, if right. there's a great book, which is called the Lords of strategies, a little bit of a history oh, of yes. the consulting industry mm -hmm. and yep. pick up and read that to figure out how Bruce Henderson took what's now BCG basically from a fledgling startup in his garage to what it is today by like Bob, you would say, but writing thought leadership and mailing that this, this evidence of the evidence of the evidence for it works. So I really love this point. And I think people should adopt that attitude. You just said there, Bob, and say, definitely do measure, link it to business results, but from a high confidence starting point, and then use the metrics to improve, but not your focus shouldn't be on, yes. oh my God, I got to justify this six months in, or they'll cancel my, my initiative. <laughs> if that's the, if you're working in that kind of place, maybe find a different place. Job. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you're in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, the, and, and so I'm hoping that measurement will move away from, you know, does this stuff work, you know, or should we yeah. go back to trade show booths again? You know, is that the way we, we market our services? So I, I think that that I think fewer people are more people are starting to believe in thought leadership as something they need to do. But the question is, well, how do we do it well?
I mean, that to me is the yeah. most important question. Yeah. So, also, by the way, conversely, I mean, I've seen thought leadership move the dial pretty substantially at firms I've worked for and worked with. So CSE Index, this is in the book, when I joined it in 87 in a thought leadership role, we were a $40 million firm. Eight years later, by 95, 1995, on the back largely of one idea, which was the blockbuster consulting concept of the 90s, business reengineering, which they developed with Michael Hammer, the father of reengineering, that firm's revenue went from 40 million in 87 to about 200 million in yep. eight years, 95. Okay? You know, one can argue with, was it solely because of thought leadership? No, maybe not. You know, we had good salespeople and, you know, we had a lot of successful consulting projects, re-engineering consulting projects. We had a lot of unsuccessful ones too. But what, what I can tell you without the research that the thought leadership research that Mike Hammer and Index did and without all the marketing they put behind that, there's no way that firm grows from yeah. 40 million to 200 million in eight years. There's no way. And you touch upon something which, and I wanted to ask about this, because I think there's a there's an efficiency benefit to thought leadership marketing that often gets missed. Because what it does, if what if I my understanding of what you think doing it well means, which is it's very tightly connected to the practice and the development of actual insight in the business, right? By the practitioners, by the subject matter experts. And then that that gets taken and marketed, which I think that's the business reengineering story. Well, what that actually means is that a huge part of the client service you do is part of the thought leadership, like the two things overlap, as opposed to saying, we do what we do in the business and the marketing team go forth and figure out a bunch of blog posts. Like that's disconnected and you have to, re you have to, to a certain extent, reinvent the wheel and do yeah. extra work in marketing. Whereas thought leadership as you describe it is almost a bit like, take, take your client service insights and know-how and put a bit for lack of a better word, put a bit of editorial extra work on top of it and then you're done like that's it that should be your expertise i, I really like that can i can I ask about the because yeah. i asked i asked you this question beforehand in that situation like doing it well you you said this how, how to do it well um how do you ensure that between the experts in the practice and, and the marketing team who i'll be diplomatic can be very far removed <laughs> from the actual <laughs> from the uh, yeah like I have been personally been that kind of marketing manager who gets all his market insight from the Harvard Business Review, which, you know, that, so, okay. Right. My point is how I asked you, how do you ensure that there is enough of a real market insight, but also a view that's broader than only what the practice sees? So what's a good approach to make sure between those two poles, you come up with something really great and do it well? Well, first of all, I think the, the most effective marketers in B2B, in thought leadership, the most effective marketers have a really good handle on the kind of clients uh, their firm is working with and the expertise that they're delivering and the projects they even, they're even include into projects that are going well and maybe even some that are not going well. Yeah. And so they have a real feel for the product you know, the the service that the the expertise that the firm is delivering. They're not kind of standing back and just, you know, writing proposals that, you know, business developers are issuing. They're, they're intimately involved in the product, which is the service, the expertise of the firm. And I think unless marketing people get 
intimately involved in those discussions with the heads of practices, heads of regions, you know, for, and, and company management, then the marketers are going to be looked upon as they're the folks who put out the brochures <laughs> and make our website look pretty, you know, and, and yeah, help edit proposals. And, and so they're not going to be looked upon as, as people who can really help us take a much more strategic approach to the business overall and to marketing and thought leadership. So and you, you, and you, also start, you have to understand, right? You have to yeah, understand the expertise yeah, yeah. of the people who are delivering expertise. You have to be able to, that's not to say you have to know how to deliver that expertise as well as them, but you have to understand it and have, you know, be able to hold conversations about that. And I think, and, yeah. and you previously said that, um, and I don't know if we talked about it or I just heard you say it somewhere else, but but you had this you have this framing of saying a good place to start in, if you want to do this well and you bring the business and marketing together, good place to start is uh, to look at the problems the firm is solving today. I really thought that was a helpful. That's so true. yes, you could do all kinds of trends and future foresight type studies, but the more promising way, if I understood you correctly, is to, to look at what do we really do well today? Again, to your business reengineering example, yeah. right? That's what we do well. So let's see if we can, let's look into data around that. So that's, that's the second that's part, right. is that correct? And that's, yeah, that is correct. And that's what I talk about as understanding, as focusing on the client, the core client problems that your firm is focusing, is focused on today. So if your firm, let's take a firm uh, based in Germany, I'm sure you're familiar with Simon Kutcher and Partners. Yeah. Right? Simon Kutcher. Yeah. So pricing, pricing, experts, right? pricing yeah. strategy. Yeah. yeah. They're the deep pricing strategy experts deep. And they've been around, I think, 30 plus years. And we helped them with their book, Monetizing Innovation, which they published yeah. in 2016. We helped them with the development of the book and, 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 and we were the ghostwriters of that book, working with them in 2015. And that, that book has had a pretty big impact on that company. Uh, their revenue, and I'm not putting this all behind the book, saying the book was the only reason or thought leadership, broadly speaking, that Simon Kutcher is, is totally responsible for, um, you know, their, they, their revenue has doubled from 2015 to 2021, was yeah. that a thought? Was that thought leadership alone that that you know that doubled revenue? And if you look at their prior growth rate, you'll see it was it was slower. They were still growing, but 2015 yeah. to 20, you know, like this, way up. So is thought leadership the only thing responsible for that? No, is that among thought leadership? Is that the only thought leadership thing? That book was pretty instrumental. You know, that's been a best-selling book, and it's been. It's been well received, especially in Silicon Valley and other tech centers around the world that may not have known that that um, Simon Kutcher and Partners existed. Right? Yeah. So that's an example of a firm that may have questioned: Should we be doing this thought leadership stuff? And I don't think questions that anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know. It's an interesting example. And then, I mean, these guys are off to a good start already because they're very focused in what they do, right? They're already sort of have that advantage. Yes. Yeah. I, I like your way of framing it to say that's that's probably helped them get on a global stage much more. I'm guessing they had global projects before. But yeah, yes. if you say now they're famous in Silicon Valley, there you have it. That's that's what uh, I thought you can do on top of your narrow positioning. Yes. 
Well, this is a great example of, you know, defining what your customer problem is and then extending out from that, but using yeah. that as kind of the basis, which is they were known as, well, you bring them in. They were known in many places, Simon Kucher. If you have a pricing issue, you know, what yeah. should we price mm -hmm. this product? Yeah. So with that book, Monetizing Innovation, their big idea was they said, look, in new product and service development, especially of tech products, um, you shouldn't develop the product. And then at the end of that process of developing a new product or service, at the end of the process, you say, okay, so what should, should the price be? That was, they argued, that was the main way that companies price new products and services. Yeah. They said, that's completely wrong. You need to start with a price in mind that, and you need to go out and do some research for a product or service you have in, in, in your mind. You need to figure out what a, a, a small set of customers sample are willing to pay for that product, given the benefits that it will give them and the cost, and then design the product or service around the price the customers are willing to pay. And if you read their book, you'll see that their clients and they have case studies on Porsche and they help uh, uh, Porsche design the Cayenne, their first sports yeah. utility. Yep. Simon Kucher will, will say a lot of companies, when they leave pricing last in the product design process, they'll wind up either overpricing it and the product is a flop because it's way too pricey or they underprice it yeah. because they didn't realize that customers are willing to pay a lot more for the value yeah. of this new product. Yeah, okay. so, <clears throat> absolutely. That's, like, a German, is... that's a favorite German story as well, by the way, the Porsche one, because I think Porsche felt the price could be X. They were like, okay, that's the cost to make the thing. Margin expectations right. are so and so many percent. And then Simon Kutcher came in and told them, effectively, you could charge double that. I'm making up the numbers, but they, they found right. that there's huge... There was huge uplift in the, in the stuff. But if we think about that Simon Kucher example, you know, yeah. okay, yeah. pricing strategy firm, right? Doesn't matter mm -hmm. what industry you're in, mm -hmm. what company will come in, yep. you have a pricing question, we'll solve it. What that IP around monetizing innovation, how to price innovation, what that IP enabled them to do in that book is to change the conversation and to, and to rethink their services, I would argue. So all of a sudden, now they're known as a product and service innovation mm -hmm. expert right yep. yeah yeah we, we need to bring simon kutcher in um not at the end of you know we've already developed this new product now let's let these guys at simon kutcher figure out how to price it no 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 we need to bring them in at the very front end of the product or service innovation process right mm -hmm. so this pricing strategy firm is now known as not just that a pricing strategy firm they're yeah. a product and service innovation firm They've moved upstream. And I, and I think even they tap into new markets because beforehand, I would say, who needs pricing optimization? Probably mature firm, large portfolio. They want to squeeze some 10% extra out of a certain unit. And now, like you said, they get to talk to, talk to startups in Silicon Valley who, who don't even have sold anything yet, probably. Right? That's, that's, that's probably a group of yeah. buyers yeah. who would never have spoken to these guys uh, a couple right. of years ago. So, yeah. No, it's a powerful, that's powerful that's story. That's so, correct. And you know, and so the the you know what problems are we solving that has moved over time? I would yeah. imagine for Simon Co mm -hmm. Simon Kutcher. Um, there's pricing is are is always going to be in what they do for any client, right? There's going to be a pricing strategy in there, but they've used their their thought leadership content to to extend the problem, the customer problems that they're solving. Yeah, and. 
so I gotta we gotta I could talk for hours about this yeah. stuff, but but I gotta watch the time. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to keep you too long. Yeah. I, have, I have one last question though. Yeah, and it's the obvious one for someone with someone who just has done this for so long as you have and just wrote the book on the discipline. But where do you see the the future of thought leadership? What what's next? Because I, I we just you and I discussed this a little bit over email. I think that especially the larger firms have gone, and I would argue professional service firms have moved from the think tank model, right? Centralized efforts, like you said, huge pieces, big meaty pieces, and then high effort, you know, long sustained campaigns. They moved to this media thing where it's still fairly centralized, but it's a bit more, um, I think the word of the year, a year ago, something was more snackable. So essentially you have more pieces you have distributed across multiple channels. My theory is, and I just want you to respond to that, is that what we'll see is we move to, I've, I've dubbed this, the creator model almost, where, it's, where it goes even further down to the individual more. So in, in your model, the way you described it, I think I'm predicting that it'll be a professionalization of the bottom-up stuff, which, as you described it in the old model, probably we had some of that and we just let it exist. Maybe there were some quality thresholds, that's that. I think what we'll see, what we'll see next is marketing teams will move in and coach and equip and guide the up down to the level of individual experts to make sure that stuff that gets from the bottom up gets way better than than it was before yes. i don't know if you agree with that or what you see i do I, I i do agree with that i think um marketing a, a central marketing group and a central thought leadership research and development group can't possibly do all the work for a big company the size of Accenture or even much smaller. Mm -hmm. And so they have to, the number of people who are highly skilled at thought leadership content development and, and marketing is a very small number right now. And yeah. there's explosive demand for these skills. So it's incumbent upon marketing and your thought leadership institute, your thought leadership R&D function to train people outside of corporate marketing and outside of central research, thought leadership research function, it's incumbent upon them to train people to raise the skills of people out in the industry and regional practices and functional practices, right? To, to help raise everybody's level of capability. Because if corporate marketing and, and, and a central thought leadership research group are the only ones developing and marketing content, it's yeah. it, it, going to be a huge bottleneck, it's, you know, no matter how well-skilled those people are. Do you think and, that's a job for yeah. the marketing people in how, like, do they have to add this to their full agendas besides creating the bigger pieces? Do they have to do the training? So do you, do you, do you see that there's maybe a market for external experts coming in just for the training and just for the enablement, so to speak, of the people in the practice? Yes. Yeah, it could be external experts, but it could also be internal experts, you know, for, um, and I, I ask you, I'm sure you've seen this in consumer marketing. My brother, Tom at Nestle, his corporate marketing communications group at Nestle, in the early days of social media, they were training the, the product units at, at Nestle about social media marketing, right? Yeah. You know, about Twitter and all, mm -hmm. the and all that stuff. So I see the same thing, you know, parallel for B2B thought leadership content development and B2B marketing, which is a central group should be bringing in best practices from the outside and from the inside and raising like everybody's le level yeah. of capability you know until yeah. they 
those units, those regional industry functional units, got it right. The skills are good. They don't need they don't need corporate's help anymore. <laughs> they know they how to design service. Their, yeah. Right. You know they don't need ghostwriting help. They have mastered it. But so so marketing people and marketing functions can play a big role in that by having people internally. And I think every marketing function needs capable thought leadership, content development and marketing people internally that they can't outsource the whole thing or else yeah. they're just never going to build up the skills. Yeah. And, and there's a risk a really... of that you have to get on top of this stuff because we had the pandemic. So every consultant who had some time over now has a ring light and a camera <laughs> and all kinds of tools like pe people will use this stuff and do it anyways. So if you want to have some chance of governance and all kinds of, you might as well, you may totally allow them to even encourage them, but sort of also provide the guidance to make sure it does what you need to do it for the firm. That, and yeah. they are. And we had a client a couple of years ago at my previous firm, uh, a big consulting firm came to us and said, this partner, um, can you edit his stuff? He's posting on LinkedIn directly. You know, we're a little worried about some of the stuff he's, can, you know, can you edit his stuff? And we said, sure we can. And so, but that's kind of a microcosm of, you know, unless there's a company edict of nobody can post anything until marketing blesses it. Yeah, no, that's not the way to do it though. Yeah. No, I mean, you don't want to keep people down. And there's a lot of very smart consultants or lawyers or whoever it is in your firm who should be posting but they could get the firm into trouble and, or and every they, every firm has them. those loose cannons right or the rainmakers <laughs> they, and they're actually good so you want them to do their thing but there's also like you said before there's also then the conflicts with messaging those places so yeah that that'll be an interesting puzzle especially for the colleagues in or the listeners in bigger firms but i totally see that coming like the race of the individual thought leaders, so to speak, and and what to do with those. I mean, that's always been there, but I'm ex expecting it to to explode. Um, well, they could be marketing's best friend too, right? Because yeah, true, if, true. if they're, if they're highly skilled at, at writing and, uh, you know, you, you don't want to kind of douse the the flames, douse the interest in, yeah. in being a thought leader. Sure. So, yeah. No, I think this is a great, this is a great decade to be in this profession of thought leadership and to be in every aspect of this profession yeah uh, if, if if we all if you believe you know as i do that thought leadership has just been discovered by private equity venture capital although they're a little ahead of private equity but it, we see signs that even private equity firms are starting to do this stuff consultants have been doing it for decades it services firms have been doing it for decades the lawyers have woken up the accountants uh, as well and the, don't forget the B2B SaaS companies who have money yeah, up the wazoo from the venture capitalist friends. Yeah. Right. Right. It, you know, yeah. I wish I was 25 years old today because the, I think the opportunities are, are tremendous for people who can get passionate about this field. And, um, I, you know, again, I wish I was a young person. I'm, you know, 66. I wish I was a young person entering this field now. Because I feel like the path is, you know, has already been blazed. You know, trails have been blazed, and now you folks have to run with them. So, well, I can't. I I don't know how to turn you back to twenty five again, but Bob. But I I will say you have done a great service to the people who are twenty five today. We're writing the book, so I think it's a great help for everyone who 
once they enter the field or, or improve in it, I, I can highly recommend it. I've read the read through the digital version and I think we tried to we tapped into some of the things, but you provide a bunch of frameworks, lots of helpful yeah. stuff how to think and do it in I think special even larger firms or complex situations, multiple stakeholders, tons of good stuff. So the decade to do this stuff. The the book is there from from Bob, so I think that's a that's a great way to a great point uh, to to wrap up and to to close it. Um, thank you, Bob Boudet, very much for for stopping by talking about. Yeah. We have to ask you where can, where can people find more find. out more about you and the book? So where where should we send them to? Sure. Okay, so the book um, is on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, so you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and find it. And uh, you can find out more about the book and about my firm at our website, which is Budai, B-U-D-A-Y, T-L-P, for Thought Leadership Partners, T-L-P.com. Excellent. And we'll put that in the show notes as well so people will come. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Bob. Great. That was brilliant. Thank you, guys. Anytime you want to talk about it. I'm, yeah, I'm that was brilliant. To bend your ears. Mm -hmm. and have you bend my ears? Because, you know, there's not just one right way to see thought leadership there there are multiple ways you know yeah. mine is not the only one so but we like yours so no. we invited you yes we do <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> thanks for listening to unbillable hours if you want more tune in next week you know where to find us 